The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Okay, um, what we're going to do is we're going to start our story in what at the time would have been called the Northwest United States. We're in the first part of the 1800s, and we're really talking about kind of this portion of it here, although later on in our story we'll actually cover this whole region here. Um, this was a sparsely pro uh, populated, impoverished area. There were basically no roads or towns. Uh, There's lots of swamps, mountains, rivers. Very, land transportation is very difficult. The area was more or less under constant warfare from 1800 till about 1880. Uh, I'm talking about large-scale uh, armed uh, armies in what would be called the Indian Wars, um, but also smaller-scale raids of dozens or half a dozen people and individual murders. Um, it was among the poorest areas on Earth. Um, who lived there? Anybody know? So early 1800s, 1810, 1820 in the Northwest United States. No one. Anybody? No, people live there. People looking for gold? Um, gold miners were a little bit later, but sure, though they, they would come along. There were some Native Americans. Many of them had been pushed from other places, right? The East Coast uh, Native Americans had been pushed in there. Uh, there were some Native Americans that lived there who were being uh, uh, resisting that. There were also Natives being pushed in from the South uh, by uh, the people in Mexico. So we got being pushed in. How about Acadian driftwood? Anybody here? So the Canadian rebels who are French-speaking are being pushed here by the English. Whiskey Rebellion, right? The rebellious people in the United States are being pushed out here, escaped slaves, uh, debtors. There was an expression at the time, GTT. If uh, you didn't want to pay your debts, you wrote GTT on your door. It meant gone to Texas, and you headed over here. So we got this area, right, full of losers, of uh, uh, violence, uh, very little in the way of... Um, economic resources. A few years ago, somebody did a list of the 100 wealthiest Americans of all time, and they compared it. They took the, tried to estimate the wealth of these people, and they compared it to the total size of the economy at the time. 19 of the 100 wealthiest Americans of all time were in that Northwest area in 1850, and they made their money from about 1850 to 1880. So what happened? How did this poor economic place with no prospects for anything, the last place in the world you would expect anybody to get rich, how did it generate such tremendous fortunes? And it isn't just money. I mean, you just say, okay, well, some of them struck gold or oil or something like that. But listen to the names. It wasn't just robber barons like uh, Rockefeller, Mellon, and Carnegie. It was great inventors like McCormick, Westinghouse, and Pullman, Innovators in other fields, such as Swift, Pulitzer, Hearst, Armour, Marshall Field. These people are household names today. I challenge anybody in this room 
to name any other business innovator anywhere in the world in the entire 1900s. Okay, so we got 19 of them in this little area, and we know them today, right? None anywhere else. Now, there were some innovations in other places, but here was clearly the place where modern business was being formed. So what was it that they had? Was it something in the water? Something in the air? What did this region have that nothing else, nobody else had? No, there was a very sparsely populated. Labor was extremely expensive. And, and, and your laborers had to spend most of their time eking out subsistence living, right? You couldn't, you know, there was no, it would be very expensive to bring in food or supplies for them. Now, labor was extremely expensive. Well, I'll tell you one thing they had was they had a game called poker. <laughs> All right, you're laughing. I hope you won't be laughing at the end of this. When we, let's go back. The first written records we have from outside this region about poker come to us from about the late 1820s and the early 1830s. It's a lot more interesting what they don't say than what they say. One thing they don't say is people in this region played this game called poker, and here's how it works. None of them explain the game at all. That's kind of strange, right? Somebody comes and tells you, hey, there's this game people are playing here, but they don't tell you the rules. They didn't even describe it as a game. The one thing they were very clear about is it involved transferring large amounts of money. They also, nobody said, oh, it's a variant of this game or that game somebody plays somewhere else. Nobody said, um, this is some game that you might be interested in. Everybody already knew. I mean, it was, you can read these things. It was common knowledge that people in this area played a game called poker. It was a very serious game played for very large amounts of money. It was played nowhere else. Nobody mentioned any antecedents. Nobody said it was brought in by the French or by the Indians or by the uh, Persians or by uh, uh, any other group. It was just there. It was there in the area. A couple other interesting things about this game. First of all, what we know that far more popular than poker at any period in time, and certainly in this period as well, were standard gambling games that are played, variants of which are played all over the world by um, people of all classes. Dice games, Pharaoh was very popular at the time, wheel-based chance games. We also know, though, the other kind of game people were familiar with is played by aristocrats, things like whist or chess that don't necessarily involve gambling, although they can, um, and involve a lot of skill. Poker was neither of the above. Okay, so let's start asking, what is there about poker that was different from any game that came before it? This might give us some clue as to why this was different. What was going on here? Ace beats king. Okay, that doesn't seem like much today. That was pretty revolutionary, right? You go to get executed in most countries of the world in those days for saying that. And, in, and, and, and ace was, by the way, in early poker, ace was always high. There was no such thing as a low ace. So that tells you something. Okay, the people who made this game, they weren't monarchists, right? They were, they were thinking a different way. Here's another thing, though. The hand rankings are in order of uh, rarity. The rarer the hand, the higher it ranks. And in early poker, we didn't have straights and flushes, um, so it's even more straightforward. But here's something kind of interesting. Here's something that changed in the game. So in the early poker up until about the 1830s, um, this principle that the rarer the hand, the more valuable it was, was actually employed much more consistently. So today, 
when you compare two hands that are of the same type, so two people each have two pair, two people each have a pair, two people each have you know, uh, a nothing hand, you decide the winner starting from the highest cards on down. Right? So if I have two pair and you have two pair, we first look at who has the higher highest pair. Then we look at who has the higher lowest pair if that's a tie. But in early poker, it was a reversed. And you can see if you rank it the way we do today, we've inverted our principle. Now, the more common the hand, like ace-high hands, there are 500,000 out of the 1.3 million. These are hands with no straight, no flush, no pair, no, no match. Uh, the ace-high hands are the most common, but they rank the highest. In poker up till about, like I say, the 1830s, we ranked it by the lowest card in the hand. So you first compared your lowest card, then your second lowest. And there you see we are true to the principle that the rarer the hand, the higher it ranks. Can anybody see the strategic difference this makes? Why is this important? Is it just, I mean, is it just completely arbitrary? What difference does it make? Let's say we did things this way in poker. What difference would it make to the play? What it means is aces are much less valuable. It's a lot like anybody here ever played low ball poker? Low ball poker, your best cards don't help you. The question is, what's your worst card? You know, you talk about a low ball hand, you talk about the highest card in the hand that makes it. You can have four great cards and a fifth card can completely ruin it. You can have ace, king, queen, jack, and then a two, and you've got a two low hand and you've got everybody, you lose to everybody else. In modern poker, if you have an ace, if we, let's say we both have hands and neither one of us has any matches or straight or flush. If I have an ace, I have an 83% chance that I beat you. But if we rank them by low card, an ace only gives you a 56% chance of winning. An ace is much less valuable because, you know, really the difference between ace, king, queen, and jack is very little because it's your lowest card that's going to determine how strong your hand is. Now, the biggest point I want to make about this isn't the subtleties of a you know, strategy when you rank hands this way. This is a game that was designed. This is a game that somebody thought about, articulated a rational principle, and did from what was at the time some pretty clever mathematics to uh, figure out the ranking. This is not a game that evolved by long tradition. This is not a game where some, somebody in a court sat down and wrote the rules. This is a game that somebody designed, and they designed it for a reason. But actually, the card play in poker is pretty trivially simple, and especially straight poker. It was called straight poker at the time. The way the game was played was you were dealt a card, you had a betting round, you were dealt a second card, you had a betting round, you were dealt a third card, you had a betting round, and then that was the last round. The last two cards at the time, they were called the turn and the river, just like in Hold'em today, uh, were dealt together, and there was no betting after the final card. I'll tell you why that's important in a bit. Another thing about the way the betting was done is there was no ante. There was no blind in the sense we know it today. The way the betting worked, and again, this shows some very careful design on somebody's part, the dealer dealt the cards. The person to the dealer's uh, left was known as the age. The age posted a stake, and they could post any, before they saw their card, their first card, they could post a stake any, any amount they wanted, including zero. They didn't have to post anything. But the rules were a little different, on the first, and this is only on the first round. At all the subsequent round, the betting is exactly the same as modern poker. But on the first round, you were not allowed to call the age's bet. So let's say the age bets a dollar. You cannot call that. You can fold or you can raise, and the minimum raise is 
amount, so the minimum bet would be $2. So this gives a lot more advantage to the age uh, compared to somebody who posts a blind today, um, a blind that can be called. In a way, you can see the analogy between what the age does and what the small blind does in poker, that uh, somebody has to double the bet in order to play. Although in modern poker, with a small blind and a big blind, someone is forced to come in and, and double. The poker players at the time were very insistent. They said, poker is not gambling. And the difference between poker and gambling is no one ever makes, no one is ever forced to make a bet. You look at your cards, you voluntarily make a bet that you think has, they wouldn't use the word at the time, but what we would say now is that you think has positive expected value. The first, the blind bet, was empirically known to be a winning, it was an advantage to be able to post it. Now mathematically, you can show that can't be true, but psychologically and empirically, it was true. That posting the blind with other people being forced to either double or fold um, uh, was, was empirically an advantage. Anyone else betting? They could bet if they thought they would win. They didn't have to bet if they didn't. Um, so let's talk about the betting in poker. There are a couple of things about it that are different from any other game that comes before. The first one is that at the end of every betting round, everyone remaining in the hand has bet exactly the same amount of money. The hand is marked to market after every round. So ultimately, you're betting on who has the best hand at showdown or who has the best surviving hand at showdown of people who haven't folded. But in between the way, at the end of every round, the game cannot continue until everyone remaining in the hand has bet the same amount. Um, this didn't last all that long. <laughs> so by the 1840s, 1850s, we're seeing there's a lot of uh, fight against these very strict rules. Uh, people started an um, adding antes. Uh, people started adding straights and flushes. People started adding betting after the final round. Uh, uh, of cards. Uh, people started adding all kinds of more complicated games, uh, draw poker, uh, stud poker with some cards revealed. Um, they started adding new kinds of hands. So the game starts to change a little bit. And uh, R.F. Foster, who was probably the, one of the first people to really write a comprehensive history of poker, and this was 100 years later, really, um, explained what happened. So there is this conservative old game scientific based on very rigid principles that eventually evolved into the modern game. The modern game a lot more fun to play. The modern game allows gambling, clearly. Um, um, the modern game is really for a somewhat different purpose. But so far we've talked about the cards and we've talked about the betting. We actually haven't talked about the most revolutionary thing in poker that again is like no other game that came before it. Um, most gambling games throughout history, and remember gambling goes back to human prehistory. Virtually every culture has forms of gambling. Um, but gambling is almost always done for either goods or cash. When credit was used, credit was provided by a, a uh, trusted central counterparty. So somebody who organized a game might organize credit. Poker was never played for cash never played for goods. Poker was played for what were called at the time poker checks. And this is a distinction that goes all the way up till about the 1980s um, um, before it finally got erased. Even in, in, in uh, as late as the 1980s when I was playing poker, 
there was a distinction and people understood it. There were two similar things that were often confused. There were checks and there were chips. And they looked kind of similar. A check had intrinsic value. Checks were used for cash. Casino checks were used for cash in Las Vegas. Nobody ever used cash. You just you know, used casino chips for all your transactions. Um, um, but they were also used for all different kinds of games. Um, chips are just markers. Chips are things you buy at the table, and you're supposed to cash them in when you leave the table. You're not even supposed to take them from you know, the roulette table over to the craps table or something like that. So chips are just markers. They have no intrinsic value. Um, there's a complicated story, which I'd be happy to talk to people about sometime. The IRS came down in some casinos when they pushed organized crime out. Um, they got rid of checks. So right now, there's no such thing as at least a legal uh, chip with a real uh, intrinsic value. They're just markers. If you show up to a casino with a $5,000 chip and you want to cash it in, they're going to ask you where you got it prove that you bought it at a casino or won it at a casino. If you can't, it won't give you any money for it. Um, but let's go back to the early 1800s. The way poker was played was with poker checks. Poker checks were markers. Uh, often they were made out of clay. People would make little discs out of clay, and they would put a thumbprint in it. They would put some identifiable marker. The key thing is that they were identifiable to an individual. You were playing poker with money you created yourself. And if you lost, other people would have these markers, and these markers would be claims on you. If you won, you had other people's markers. At the end of the game, people did something called ring clearing, which means that, so, okay, you played a game for a while, you got a bunch of checks in front of you, you're gonna take the checks you have from other people, you're gonna trade them for your own checks back. Um, you're going to end up with, if you were a winner, you're going to end up with a bunch of other people's checks, and suddenly a bunch of people owe you money. Or if you were a loser, other people are net going to end up with yours. But it's a winner's responsibility to collect from the losers. There's no central counterparty. There's no trusting. Uh, you play. If you don't like a guy's checks, you know, too bad. You got some things that aren't. Maybe you can find somebody else to trade you something for them. Now, what you've done is you've created a form of money. It's this credit creation that is a really essential element of early poker. And let's talk about another financial institution from this period, the soft money bank, otherwise called a wildcat bank. People created banks, and the way they created banks is somebody said, I have a bank, and uh, I'm going to make loans. And I'll either print up some banknotes, some of which were extremely crude, uh, people even used markers, twigs, you know, uh, old tally sticks, things like that. They used anything they could find um, in, in, as, as banknotes, or they just kept an accounting system. You know, if you want to spend the money, you, somebody has to deposit it into the bank. Um, if it worked, this generated a lot of economic activity. Everything was successful, the loans paid off, deposits were honored, everything was fine. If it didn't work, everything was worthless. Um, if you add one feature to this, it comes what most people think of as a bank. The one feature we're missing from this bank is what? Actual money, gold, right. Now, this is kind of an interesting dichotomy in economics. To me, a classic bank is a soft money bank. Capital, to me, is an additional feature that gives it some credibility, right? It means two things. It means the person creating the bank is going to have some skin in the game. It's going to take a loss if the whole bank collapses, if nobody ever pays back their loans. So that shows it's a signal to show they have some confidence. 
Also, the cash they put in, the capital they put in, in theory, is going to help people if, uh, if, if, if the bank fails. It'll pay off some portion of the losses. In practice, it never does. In practice, the people who run the banks always get their capital out before um, anybody else. But a lot of the legislation in banks, a lot of the way people think about banks is, is the opposite. They think about it as a classic bank is something that has 100% capital and that fractional reserve is some kind of like, you know, uh, little extra thing you do to a bank. Um, but we can see, if you look again, human prehistory cultures, you see almost all cultures have some form of this self-credit creation. All kinds of things, susus, tontines, uh, wichingis, all over the world we have these kinds of things, and they were useful in the American West. Well, poker was one of them. Poker was a way you could create a form of money, your own money, you'd play a game, you won, you picked up a lot of credit from other people, and you could use that to generate some economic activity. If you lost, other people had to employ you, right? They had to get their money back somehow. You didn't have any money. They had to find things for you to do to work in their businesses. And this is how a lot of business was created in the Old West. Now we're gonna move a little forward to around the 1840s. Anyone know what this is? It is the Chicago Board of Trade. This is actually around 1900, so it wouldn't be quite so fancy back in 1840. Um, futures exchanges, again, appeared in exactly the same geographic area as the game of poker about 20 years later. Nobody invented it. Suddenly these things started popping up all over the place. A financial institution no one had ever seen before, completely unlike anything in the past. None of them outside the region ubiquitous inside the region, and nobody said they invented it. There was something in the culture and the way people thought, the way people did business, that made this a very natural thing to do, even though it had never been done before. And the analogies with poker are pretty obvious, right? Mark to market. Every day, you, you know, you're betting on the price of wheat in three months, but every day you settle up so that you got the same amount of money at stake. Clearing. Again, the initial exchanges in the early days, they used ring clearing, exactly the same as poker. Later on, they went to a full clearing house that was a little more sophisticated um, and, and allowed people to do it. But what's the purpose of these exchanges? What does these futures exchange do for people? Locking the price. Like who? Who would want to lock in a price? Okay, well, let's think about this. I'm a farmer, 1840. I'm about a two-week journey from Chicago over bad roads. Normally I do what farmers have done since the beginning of private, uh, um, private agriculture. They would sell to a crop buyer. I would go to the place where I buy my supplies and there's a crop buyer who has an agent there. Or that agent also comes by my farm you know, every month or so, kind of to check out the, how the crops are going because he wants to keep tabs on the crops and also I can lock in a price with him. He will buy exactly my crop. He will buy whatever quantity I happen to produce. He'll just he'll agree on a price now or he'll set the price later, whatever I want. I deliver it, I can deliver it to him or for a slightly lower price, he'll come and pick it up at my farm. Now let's compare that with this futures exchange, this brand new innovation that's gonna make my life better. I can take a two week journey into Chicago. I can promise to deliver a set quantity of a set grade of wheat that I don't produce, that I can't be sure I will have on time. Uh, I don't know the quantity I'm gonna produce, but I have to specify that. I have to put down initial margin. I don't have any cash. All my cash is tied up in my crop. Farmers only have cash after harvest. Um, 
And I have to stay in Chicago every day to make mark-to-market payments, since who's growing my wheat? Okay, so this makes absolutely no sense. Anytime you read a textbook and it talks about farmers using futures exchanges, you know they haven't spent half a second thinking about this. There were no farmers involved in setting up the futures exchanges. In fact, farmers were suspicious and have often had tried to have them shut down. When farmers do use futures exchanges, they almost always buy the product. They don't sell it. So let's talk about what people really use these things for. Here is, here is the canonical trade that you can think about if you want to understand futures markets. I'm a processor. All the people who set these things up, and by the way, all the people who set these things up were poker players. I'm not kidding. I mean, you look it up. You just find the name. You find all these people who were poker players. Um, I grind wheat, OK? I'm not going to use this for hedging. I can't use it for hedging, right? I buy wheat, that's true, so, but is my exposure to wheat going up in price or wheat going down in price? Oh, going up? Okay, well, let me tell you two stories. Story number one, there's a sudden increase in demand for wheat. There's a big war in Europe. Uh, other crops fail in other regions. Price of wheat goes way up. What happens to my business? I'm making lots of money, right? They've got to grind lots of wheat. They're bringing all the wheat in from all the hinterland. Everybody grinds it. Shortage of grinding capacity. I can raise my prices. I'm rich. So that way, I'm long wheat, right? Price of wheat goes up. My business goes up. You're Let's say, sorry? You're assuming that the price of grounded wheat is very correlated to the price of wheat. Yes. I'm saying that so, so the price of ground wheat is what went up. And because the price of ground wheat went up, my business is more valuable. And you're exactly, you hit the point exactly. That's the stuff I'm selling. Now let's do a different story. There's a crop failure in the area. Price of wheat goes way up, right? Wheat is scarce. Who wants my grinding facilities? Nobody. There's an excess of grinding facilities. I can't charge a penny. Okay, so I have no natural wheat exposure. I can't hedge my wheat exposure in this futures market. Also, for the same reasons I mentioned in the farmer, it's not a convenient place to do it, right? It's a type and grade of wheat I don't want at a place I don't want. Um, also, the price of wheat has very little to do with my business. What I care about is, is my machinery operating um, um, properly, what's the price of fuel, what's the price of labor, what are the regulations on the stuff, what's the quality of the stuff I'm getting. I can lock in prices with suppliers and you know, either buyers of the flour or, uh, or sellers of wheat anytime I want. That's not the point of the futures market. What you want to think about is I'm, I'm, I'm grinding the wheat. I'm going to go to a silo, a grain silo. Grain silo is a guy, he buys wheat from all over the place and he sells it to people like me. I'm gonna say, okay, I want these wheat deliveries over the next three months, you know, so much and so uh, on these various times. I want it delivered to my grinding facility. I want exactly this type and, and, and kind of wheat. Um, and he'll agree and we'll settle a deal. Now, I'm gonna go to the futures exchange. I've just bought a quarter's worth of wheat from the wheat silo. I'm going to go to the futures exchange. I'm going to sell a quarter's worth of wheat forward. What have I done? Well, now I have no price risk, right? Now, if the price of wheat goes up or down, I don't care because I've bought wheat today and I've sold it three months from now. I have borrowed wheat. Now, what could I do instead? I could borrow money. I could borrow money and buy the wheat. But then I take two price risks. I take the price risk of the money and remember, this is an area there's very little money around. These futures exchanges were invented in a place where there was very little gold and silver. There wasn't a good banking system. Banknotes weren't very trustworthy. 
So taking the risk of money was a big risk, and also price of wheat going up and down. Simplest thing is just to borrow wheat, which is what I want to do. And like any business loan, I never intend to repay this. Right? If I'm doing a business loan, say, to buy machinery, I make the loan, and when the loan comes due, I borrow again because you know, I just, I just to run the business. The only time I pay back my business loans is when I shut down the business and liquidate everything and pay off the creditors. Same thing with this. I'm going to roll these futures contracts forward forever. I'm never going to take delivery. But what I've done is I perpetually borrowed wheat. I've taken part of my business input, and I borrowed it instead of buying it. But here's one, uh, so, so one thing is the futures exchanges create a tremendous amount of credit. But they do something else too that's kind of interesting. Anybody here know how to take flour and turn it back into wheat? Anybody here know how to take August wheat and move it back in time to May? All right, I have something very surprising to tell you. For 175 years, the Chicago Board of Trade here has been quoting prices on both of those services. A futures exchange quotes prices on services nobody's ever thought of. It opens tremendous scope for innovation. Let's say I want to build a bridge. And when I build this bridge, it's going to make, you know, divert wheat that was going to St. Louis is going to get diverted to Chicago because now it's going to be cheaper to move it into Chicago. I can hedge that. I can sell those transportation services in the futures market by buying Chicago wheat and selling St. Louis wheat. Um, um, I can do calendar spreads, I can do grade spreads, cleaning spreads. All of these things are a way of buying and selling all the services involved in an uh, agricultural um, processing uh, business. And this turns out to be a far more efficient way to organize things. It's got its internally generated credit, got far better information flows, and this is what touches off a tremendous uh, explosion of business activity and business innovation that goes throughout the world. Now, uh, one of the things that's kind of strange about futures markets is they were only used for agricultural commodities. Now, granted, that was a much bigger part of the economy than it is today, but in the global economy, this was not a big deal. There were much, much more valuable commodities that never went to futures exchanges. And there were things, commodities weren't even the most valuable things. Uh, when things really took off is in the 1970s when people took the same idea and moved it to financial. But my story is um, about poker. One of the things people sometimes say is that futures evolved from two-arrive contracts. Now, two-arrive contracts have been around as long, longer than we have written records. The ancient Mesopotamia, in the early days, we see the earliest writings we still, and still read today, we find that these two-arrive contracts were common. A two-arrive contract says, essentially, um, I will sell you 10,000 bushels of wheat at 50 cents a bushel as soon as wheat comes to the market, wheat comes to the city market. Okay, it's a price guarantee. It's not a delivery guarantee. I don't tell you when you're going to get it. I don't even guarantee you will get it. I'm just saying when it comes, this is what I will sell it to you at. The largest to-arrive market in the United States was in Buffalo. Okay, everybody remember all those stories about the fortunes won and lost on the Buffalo Stock uh, um, To-arrive exchange, the fist fights, the uh, corners, the uh, people who made their fortunes here and went on to do anything else. Exactly. <laughs> commission, uh, two arrive contracts are run by quiet commission clerks. 
Futures exchanges are populated by tough, brawling innovators who often make fortunes or lose fortunes and go on to do dramatic business activity. There's no connection between the two. Now, anybody tell me which ones of these are poker games? Sorry? Omaha, Texas, yep. Chicago, yes. This one you guys might not have heard of so much, but there is a Cincinnati. It isn't played much anymore. Um, there is no poker game called Buffalo. There is no poker game named after any place except places where if you lose all your money in the game, drown your sorrows by jumping in a river, you float down to New Orleans. <laughs> Even today, poker is very, very strongly regionally, uh, it, it's a regional attitude. It's an extraordinarily explosive, innovative economic attitude and it has never really seeped out except the place it was born. Now, that may no longer be true with internet poker. Um, the question is, is the soul of poker alive, internet poker? Has this economic innovation and freedom and self-credit creation, is this something that's gonna spread to the whole world? Or has somehow poker been neutralized and when it comes through a computer and becomes virtual, it's no longer got that soul? It's something we're gonna find out in the next few years. Now we're going to jump forward to me. Okay, I was born in the 1950s. I was raised in Seattle. Um, and one thing you have to understand is two people can be raised in exactly the same time, exactly the same environment, and have totally different ideas of what it was like. I think most people would say, if looking at my, if a movie was made of my childhood, they would say, hey, that was an idyllic childhood, right? You had, your dad was a professor, you didn't have so much money that you had affluenza and were, you know, wrecking cars or things like that, but you were never, you know, you never embarrassed that you didn't have clothes for school, you never hungry, anything like that. Uh, you were treated well, it was a suburban neighborhood, it was a pretty place, you had lots of stimulation, all that stuff was good, but I hated it. Um, I was oppressed by lots of things. Uh, I believed, I sincerely believed, that the world was going to end in nuclear war before I was in college. It just seemed like clearly what was likely to happen. I was interested in math and science, but all the math and science was defense-related. The only, you know, only big government projects to kill people were the only way you could get um, uh, funding for things. More than half the world was in the grip of brutal totalitarian dictatorships, and no country had ever emerged from communism to freedom and prosperity. It seemed like the entire world, even the free world, even the relative democracies, were run by paranoids and total incompetence. The economy was terrible. Seattle was a few years ahead of the rest of the country, and we had sort of slipped into that 70s malaise uh, back in the 60s. A friend of the family who was an aerospace engineer, he was the world expert, in fact, he went to MIT. He was the world expert in materials for supersonic wing design. He was fired because nobody wanted to build supersonic planes and he was driving a cab. Um, another thing about this is this is, again, Seattle was kind of a forward looking in terms of economics. We were getting the economic malaise before the rest of the country. And another way we were kind of a throwback, it was more like the 50s um, in other parts of the country. And it was this really weird social dynamic. Okay. I don't want to tell you the neighborhood I grew up in was any worse or, or weirder than any other neighborhood, but there's a certain percentage of alcoholics, of child molesters, of you know, wife beaters, of uh, drug addicts, all this stuff. And in the 50s and kind of in Seattle by the time I was growing up, nobody cared about it. Nobody would ever talk about any of that stuff, right? If a man cut his grass, 
and brought home a paycheck, he was a good guy. He could do anything else and nobody would talk about it. Um, but if you didn't, and we would have, something would happen, like a neighbor, uh, the guy would lose his job, they would quietly move away and nobody would ever talk about them. It was just weird. And you got the message, okay, that the economy was very insecure. If you could earn money, everything was fine. You didn't have to worry about anything else. But if you couldn't earn money, it was unspeakably bad. Well, I was a shy kid. I was introverted, awkward. Um, but I liked looking in the back of the newspaper. And the numbers, the patterns in the numbers really fascinated me. And I worked out ways, and I would you know, bet money on horses. I would bet money on other sports. Um, and I found out I could win doing this. I also found out, and this was true throughout the American West at the time, uh, I couldn't really find a good picture of this. This is just something I found on the internet that's roughly equivalent. Um, taverns, in the back room of the taverns, in the basement of the taverns, there were these poker games. And uh, I'd go in, and I'd play, and I'd win. And more important than that I would win, I could walk in, I could collect the money, I could walk out, um, and this was enormously liberating to me. Because it said to me, okay, you don't have to get a job. You don't have to go to college. Anywhere you go in the world, you can find a poker game. You can win money. And when you're a good player and people know it, if you, even if you run out of money, people will lend you money. People will stake you. You also start getting into this network. And this was something I had not expected at all. I had gone there. I thought, okay, I'm going to win some money, and then I'm going to prove that I can you know, get this monkey off my back. I don't have to worry about this anymore. Um, these people, you know, people I was playing with didn't look, some one or two of them might have looked like this. But there were policemen, there were sailors, there were clerks, there were, you know, people, and, and they end up owing you money, right? If you're a good player, these people end up owing you money. And I later kind of figured, I sort of had a half idea of what was going on at the time, but I've later kind of figured it out a little better. And, and later in life, as I played more places, I, I figured out the system um, a little better. I had a purpose for these people. I, I, I had two purposes. One is, because I was a good player, I protected their game, right? If somebody showed up, let's say somebody showed up, a really good player wanted to take all their money, show up, and well, they had somebody there who was good. And by the way, being a good poker player in those days didn't just mean good card play. In fact, it would be trivially, you know, I'm sure anybody here would have no trouble cleaning up in terms of pure card play uh, in this game. But you had to be able to spot cheating, you had to be able to figure out you know, who might uh, uh, risk of arrest. You had to figure out who might get violent. I mean, there was a lot of social skills involved in this. So by being the good player, you kind of protected the game. But you also connected them with a bigger um, network. So remember, a lot of this is about credit creation. Tremendous amount of economic activity goes on here, right? Um, there's doctors, lawyers, uh, police, uh, mechanics, whatever. People exchanging services, underground economy. Um, um, people who couldn't make it in the normal economy. Like, let's say you're a lawyer and you're a really bad lawyer. Um, and you can't get any business. You hang out a shingle. Nobody's going to hire you. Your resume isn't very good. There's too many lawyers around. But, you know, somebody, you owe somebody money in a poker game and they want you to write a letter and, you know, do something for them, whatever. You can do a little legal business uh, on this stuff. And by connecting into the broader network um, in the city, you connect these people in. Some of these people had really dropped out of normal life. Or, you know, they, they weren't getting paychecks. They were subsisting entirely in the underground economy. And this was a very important organizational tool. Other people like to keep one foot in that world. 
you know, maybe a little side income, maybe a little fallback. A lot of, you know, you know, we weren't doing like big organized crime, but you know, there'd be a sailor in the game who could bring in Cuban cigars, you know, and there was a guy who was maybe a bathroom attendant at a fancy restaurant who could sell them, and you know, this kind of stuff could get organized um, in a game like this. The poker was very important because you actually spent a lot of time with these people. You learned a lot about them. You couldn't fake it um, in a way, you know, an undercover cop could show up and, you know, for two days or act something like this, but they aren't gonna be playing poker every day for years. So I'm kind of moving up in the Seattle poker uh, um, network, and I come to Boston. Uh, I went to Harvard, and again, remember, I'm shy, I'm awkward, I'm, uh, you know, from the West, um, a little overwhelmed by all this stuff. But I walked in with a network. It shocked me when I got here that this network was seamlessly translated across the country. That I knew police, I knew uh, um, um, you know, poker people of all different ranks and stations of life. Um, I uh, got into some very good poker games at Harvard itself. You know, people talk about going to college to make contacts. Well, let me tell you about that. I had three roommates. I love my roommates. These are great guys. I'm not saying anything bad about them. But in terms of like useful contacts for me in life, well, one of them's a corporate lawyer, one of them's a TV producer, one of them's a law professor. I mean, all great things. That's nice. Never really a lot of use to me in terms of like advancing my business interests or whatever. And, and not exactly hard things to break into, right? You want to know a corporate lawyer? Well, it's pretty easy to know a corporate lawyer. Um, Poker games at Harvard, uh, I played with uh, George W. Bush, who went on to be president. I played with Bill Gates, uh, Steve Ballmer, Scott Turow. I mean, people who are celebrities, politicians, rich people. Those are the poker connections. And a poker connection is very different. You're not playing poker with your friends. A poker connection is there is a business relationship in there that can be extremely useful. My whole life, my whole career has been informed uh, by poker networks. Now, I'm gonna kind of zip through a few things. Um, I'm playing in Boston. A guy shows up, from, he was actually managed a card room near Stanford University. He was, again, it, it's this network thing. So I'm playing now in a pretty senior game in Boston. Some of the best card players in Boston are here. Uh, pretty high stakes. Um, and they invite kind of visiting pros from other parts of the country to keep the network you know, uh, connected throughout the country. And this guy said to me, he said, uh, um, well, I was good. I played well that night. <laughs> but it wasn't just that. He said, you know, you're a kind of strange guy. You, you got this sort of mathematical poker sense. You got, you know, you think about it in theoretical terms, whatever. There are a lot of guys like you out in Gardena, California. He said, that's where the best poker in the world is being played. Um, he said, I could, you know, I'm, I'm a good player. I'm a national pro. I, you know, go around from city to city, sitting in on games with the best players in the city, and I win in those games but I can't turn a profit in Gardena. You should go to Gardena and see if you can, you know, match yourself up with the best. Um, so I go there. Uh, I don't know how many people have heard of Gardena, California. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you're interested, there's a movie called California Split that's got some good scenes. It's a stupid poker movie for the most part, but it has some actual scenes shot in Gardena at that time. That was the best poker in the world. And it was the network theory I was talking about on steroids because of a few things. First of all, this is in the late 70s. Uh, marginal tax rates have gotten really high. Regulation has gotten crazy. The tax code is incredibly complicated and corrupt. 
Community property, big thing. A lot of these guys were wiped out in a divorce. I mean, that was something that just didn't happen 10 years earlier. A lot of them had tax leads. So you have this whole group of people, they tend to be, they were much better educated than the guys I was playing with in, Chicago, in, in Seattle, or even really the guys in Boston. They were smart. Not only were they broke, they were kind of financially toxic. They couldn't, any money they put in a bank was getting whisked away by somebody. If they were walking down the street you know, with a dollar in their pocket, somebody could grab it. Poker chip, not so much, right? Poker debt, right? They lent some money to somebody in the poker room. You know, nobody could collect that. Tremendous amount of very active uh, underground economy going on. I go there, the first day I'm there, a guy comes up to me, he manages a motel. He used to own it, went bankrupt. Now the bank pays him to manage it. He uh, has, he's, he, if you're a poker player, he'll give you a room to stay in. You don't have to pay, you, you slip him you know, a little bit of money, much less than the rent would be. It's kind of furnished with broken down stuff other tenants have left, but poker players don't care, right? Poker players are there, they go, they sleep on the broken couch, and then they leave. You know, they may, maybe take a shower if you know, it's like it's first of the month or something. Um, and, and you'd stay there for three or four months, and eventually you know, the owners would kick you out, and he'd just say, oh, well, you know, the guy never paid me rent. Um, and he would cover all this for you and do it. And then you just move to the next motel down the line and he moved somebody else in. Uh, you wanted to get your car fixed, you wanted to get a lawsuit filed, you wanted to get you know, your uh, 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 operation done, whatever. There were people in the room uh, to do it all for under the table, all you could borrow the money. And um, all of the people who kind of invented the modern poker, if you talk about you know, the David Sklanskys, Mason Malmuth, Mike Caro, I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but these were the first people who actually sat down and wrote poker theory books. This was the only place where people were really thinking about it. Las Vegas, they hated poker. Casinos hate poker. Uh, the reason casinos hated poker is somebody in the building was losing money and the casino wasn't getting it. Um, and they would stick it, they either wouldn't have poker, they'd stick it next to the loudest slot machines under the stairs, they'd open and close the room at random intervals. The one thing they did was a World Series of Poker. It was pure casino publicity stunt. It had nothing to do with poker in those days. Um, only in like the late 90s, early 2000s, with lots of people being brought in by internet, uh, with the poker boom, with television, did casinos really come to terms with and start liking poker. But Gardena was pure poker, and that's where the... Uh, Good stuff was done. Now, I'm not, I'm making all my living by poker, but um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I, have a, I have broader interest. I'm thinking, uh, I was really, when I came to Boston for four years, um, I was shocked at how shoddy I felt that most quantitative analysis was. I thought, people are doing this work. They're teaching the stuff, they're advising the government, they're running the government, they're writing these papers, this and that. They have t terrible data. They have really stupid analysis. And, and the biggest thing, the way I kind of encapsulated all of this is, none of them would bet a nickel on their own results. Every single one of them, if they were buying a car, they would spend a lot more serious common sense analysis to get the right car than they do recommending a plan for the government to take over you know, the steel industry or something like that. Um, and a lot of other people kind of felt the same way. And we had both some philosophical and some kind of empirical ideas that, you know, we were, we were sold on the idea of quantitative analysis. We were confident in our ability to make bets and win. One of the things about hanging around with gamblers, there's a lot of bad stuff. Gamblers are really nasty people. Um, um, a lot of really bad stuff. Um, one of the flip sides of that is you don't have to be nice, which is kind of 
takes a lot of pressure off. Um, but um, they do take things seriously, right? Anything you say, somebody can say, put some money on it. If you won't, you're just you know an idiot, loser, chattering. You start really thinking about things if you actually have to bet money on anything, any opinion you get. You know, a lot of you get a lot of silly, chattering conversation never happens if uh, if people have to bet on everything they say. Anyway, though, um, the the natural thing to do is say, okay, I want to go to a place. I want to prove that my methods work. And the way I'm going to prove my methods work is I'm going to go to places where people gamble, and I'm going to prove that I can win. Now, all of us had read Ed Thorpe's uh, Beat the Dealer. People here know Ed Thorpe? Okay, you should. You should read his books. <laughs> I should meet him. He's still alive. Um, um, he's, uh, he was the mathematics professor. He invented blackjack card counting. He managed to beat virtually every other casino game. Uh, and he's also either um, uh, invented or perfected almost all of the quantitative hedge fund strategies that people use today. He's one of the most successful hedge fund managers um, uh, for many years. So one thing we did is we wanted to go and beat casino games. And the one I like to talk about, I'm just going to mention this very briefly, but roulette to me was the you know, one that really changed the way I think about a lot of stuff. It's a very, very important lesson for people who have kind of academic statistics backgrounds. How do you beat roulette? Okay. Well, this was Ed Thorpe's. You know, Ed Thorpe was thinking about this, and, and, and he was hearing this debate, and, and some people said, uh, you should find a broken wheel. You should just record the patterns in the wheels and see if you can notice patterns, like the wheel's a little weighted, one number comes up a little more than the others. But other people said, no, that's impossible. You know, the wheels are too good. And Ed had a really remarkable insight that not enough people know about. He said, you can win money either way. If the wheel's broken and, you know, 13 comes up, you know, a little more than it should, you can bet on 13, that's easy. But if the wheel is so perfect, that every number comes up equally often. It must be machined to such perfection that you could use a little physics. We had some uh, mechanics up on the board when I came here. You know, you know use uh, Newtonian physics, and you can figure out where the ball is going to end up. So he did a lot of work. He did it with Claude Shannon. Again, we're back to uh, um, MIT, uh, the father of information theory. And they sat down, and they worked on roulette. And if you study this problem for a bit, you pretty quickly find out Here's how things work. Uh, the way roulette works, they, they spin a wheel in one direction, and they spin a ball around the outside of a bowl the other way. Okay, everything is very Newtonian um, until the ball goes away from the edge. It is very easy with a little bit of electronic aids, which at the time were legal and are now illegal, but uh, um, with electronic aids, it's very easy to tell what number will be under the ball when the ball leaves the edge. Now there's a lot of bouncing and banging around between that and when the ball comes to rest. And that's pretty chaotic, essentially impossible to predict. So you have this perfectly predictable section, and then you have this chaotic section. But here's the insight. The predictable section you can calculate. You can know, okay, you say when the ball goes under the edge, number 17 will be directly underneath it. The chaotic part cannot be uniform on the wheel. You can say, if 17 is under it when the ball comes down, here is the distribution of places the ball is going to end up on the wheel, and it's nowhere near random, nowhere near uniform. So you can make good bets. Now, if you actually want to do this, you have to get several layers. You have to kind of keep refining this um, notion. 
But I, I just want to focus on the big picture. A lot of statistical theory, the basic theory of statistics was based on dice. That's what Nassim Taleb calls the ludic fallacy. People trying to create randomness. The real world is nowhere near so random. Even when people try to create randomness, even in a casino, they can't do it. And the reason they can't do it is if you build things really, really precisely, they're predictable. If you build things kind of loose and sloppy, they have non-uniform patterns. What you can't do is build a device that's both. It exceeds human capabilities. And when we're talking about the practical randomness you see in the world, in the stock market, in uh, um, you know, other human and politics and war, anything you want to talk about, people are way too sloppy in modeling things as random. Whenever somebody says this thing is random, you say, I'm going to take a hard look. And I am going to find little pockets of predictability that I can calculate. And in between those pockets of predictability, I'm going to find patterns that are non-uniform. And what I'm going to end up with is I'm going to end up with a system where people are saying, you know, you're obsessing about data and data quality for things that don't really matter very much. Nobody else thinks these things are important. Why are you spending all your time cleaning data for something that's far removed from the essential economics of this problem? And they're also going to say, and here are the really important things. And you're just waving your hands. You're not paying attention. You're making criminally reckless or, or, or crude assumptions about those things. But what they don't understand is that's exactly how you beat it. That is what you do. When you figure this stuff out, you really come up with the same that will uh, um, understand and make a profit, it will look like that to outsiders, that you're focused on stuff that doesn't matter and you're ignoring the stuff that does matter. Put it another way, the stuff you think that matters doesn't. And the stuff you don't think that matters does. And when you do enough work on this kind of stuff, that's how you win. Now, the thing about the people uh, who did uh, blackjack card counting and roulette and baccarat and craps and worked on all those other games, what happens when uh, people find out that's what they're doing? Yeah, it depends on the time and the place, whether you're you know, buried in the desert or just warned off or whatever. But basically, you have to fool the casino. You're taking money from the casino. The people who stuck with this hate casinos a lot more than they like money. They tend to be antisocial people. You don't need any social skills, right? All you need is, I mean, if you've seen some of the movies, the MIT blackjack team, bring down the house, whatever. Uh, you see some wildly over-the-top play acting to get things. That isn't what most of these guys were. Most of these guys were quiet. They went in. They, the casino gets the game. The casino takes care of stuff. Uh, you just go in and play, but you have to stay under the radar. You can't let the casino notice. Now, people also looked at another field, sports betting. Now, sports betting, is this is frequentist stuff. This is Bayesian stuff. It is a lot easier to uh, predict um, how people are going to bet than how a game is going to come out. If you wanted to predict an NBA game from first principles and figure out what the proper point spread was, you got a big job ahead of you. It can be done, and people have done it and made some successful results, but that's a big job. Here's an easy observation that was enough. In the 1970s, this was enough to make money. Los Angeles Lakers are a glamorous team. They were at the time. Los Angeles is a big betting city. When the Lakers play at home, there's a lot of money coming in and betting on them. The point spread is going to be too favorable. Bet against the Lakers at home. 
right? Don't need a genius, don't need a math PhD, don't need a computer, you can just figure this out. And patterns like this are very easy to catch, but they're based on understanding people. So the malcontents, the introverts, the autistic people, they all went here. The people who like people went into sports betting. Now what happens if you're sports betting and you're successful, what happens? Well, actually, in, at least certainly in those days, they hire you, right? They want, they, great, hey, you're winning. We want to take advantage of that. We'll pay you a salary. You, you, know, you bet for us. And then the way they would pay you, by the way, is they would let you make bigger bets. Um, um, and so, uh, so you become part of the organization. And pretty soon you're running your own uh, uh, bookmaking operation and so on. So these are social people. These are Bayesian people. These people are betting on frequencies. These people are betting on people. Both of them are learning skills and techniques that nobody taught in a classroom. That were totally generations ahead of uh, what statisticians were doing in academics, what people were doing in econometrics, anything like that. These people were because these people had to. It only worked if you're right. You're betting every day. Smartest people in the world are spending every waking moment trying to find a way to beat it. I did some of both of these. I also did some poker. Um, I was mostly a poker player. Poker is kind of in between. Okay, you got some. Uh, card play kind of thing, uh, shuffle reading, um, uh, things like that. But you also got to know something about people, not as much as a guy doing sports betting. You don't have to predict actions of thousands of people. Um, but you do got to be able to look around the people at the table and figure some stuff out. You got to be able to get invited to games. You got to be able to collect from losers. You got to be able to avoid arrest or, 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 or uh, getting cheated or beaten up and stuff like that. So we were kind of in between. Um, some, a lot of people I know from those days, this, this is the 70s, 80s, early 80s, a lot of the people stayed at it. But a lot of us having honed our skills and figured, okay, now we, now we think we know something, right? You know, I, um, I've been playing poker since I'm 14. I've been, uh, you know, had moderate success in uh, beating casino games and sports betting. I've had some really strong success at poker. I have some confidence, right? I don't just think I know something, I know something. And the reason I believe it is I've, went to the places where you test that stuff and, uh, and walked away with people's money. Um, so a lot of us went into finance. So this is really now we're talking about the early 80s. The uh, people who like casino games, they like secretive little hedge funds. Uh, they wanted to invest their own money or only a few wealthy investors. Uh, they wanted, they, as soon as they could, they wanted to pay off their investors and just by themselves. Um, and uh, and you know, some of some really brilliant stuff tend fairly narrow focus, tend to like pick some narrow niche kind of thing and, and do it. Uh, Bayesians, these people were natural. These people went into big bank stuff. They knew people, they knew businesses, they were uh, uh, you know, uh, bank executive types. And by the way, in these days I'm talking about, you didn't, you know, you left math off your resume if you wanted to apply for a Wall Street job. Um, I'm not kidding. You, you know, people thought if you knew math, it'd be like, you know, you want to go to the NFL, you know. In the NFL, they don't want you if you got a PhD in math. That's like, they don't want smart people. Uh, Wall Street did not want uh, people who knew math. Some of them understood that smart people would be dangerous. Others just thought that anybody in math had to be um, ivory tower and couldn't possibly uh, uh, know anything. But still, once you got there, these skills were incredibly useful, right? If you'd been five, six years uh, betting sports successfully, you knew a lot of stuff about markets and, and businesses and how to run things and people that some of these other people would never learn um, their whole life. 
Uh, these people didn't have to get a job, but their problem was could they find somebody to trade with? Could they get people to broker for them, to trade with them, and so on? So they had a lot of problem with that. Um, me, poker players, people like me, we could get jobs. We didn't want high-level executive jobs, though. We wanted to be kind of, you know, run some little department that kind of under the radar screen. We'd run a quant trading team. We'd do some pairs trading. We'd do some quant stuff. We'd do uh, structured products. We did a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, we were used to networking. We were good at that. Uh, but under the screen, we weren't good at, like, you know, showing up in a suit and tie and being nice to bosses <laughs> and things like that. We weren't good at raising money. Um, which is why we kind of had to go, um, you know, kind of hook up with a big firm. We liked the fact that the firm would give us trading capital, the firm would give us uh, set up relationships, so we didn't have any problem like opening up trading lines and things like that. Um, um, but we basically got to keep what we made, or we got to keep a portion of what we made, um, which is the way we, we, we like to do it. This is what really revolutionized Wall Street. The thing I tell people is, Having lived through this from the early 80s to now, it's people don't understand how much finance has changed. An awful lot of finance is written as if there's some continuous history, some minor technical innovations. You know, electronic trading is just a little bit faster way of people yelling at each other in a pit. Well, it's not true. The entire fundamental technological basis of finance has changed, has completely been redone. Um, I use the uh, analogy of a digital camera versus a chemical camera. You know, they kind of look the same, or they used to. Now they're in your phone, but a few years ago, you know, a few digital camera looked kind of the same. It runs on battery, it's got a flash, it's got a lens, it's got a shutter button. Uh, people use it for the same thing. They take pictures of their friends, their vacations, their parties, things like that. But the technology inside is entirely, totally different. If you want to make a camera, you know, it's, you hire completely different people, use completely different processes, the theory is completely different. Well, that's the difference in finance. And the people of my generation, the quants of my generation, are the ones that built that. And most of it, it has a lot more of its genetics come from sports betting and beating casino games and poker than it does from economic theory of the 1970s and 1980s era vintage. Um, for those of you who are interested in this stuff, um, I put a few books here. Um, I did these in alphabetical order of title. I do have a couple of my own books here, but uh, you know, Beat the Market by Ed Thorpe. Uh, you just read anything you can by Ed Thorpe. A lot of it's available um, free online. Uh, you just gotta, um, um, that, that's a guy you want under, you know, who understands stuff. Um, James uh, McManus, friend of mine, uh, wrote Cowboys Full. Uh, some of you may remember James. He made the final table of the main event of the World Series of Poker and wrote a best-selling book about it, which is a lot of fun too, Positively Fifth Street. Uh, but this is a history of poker. If that's, your, if that's what you're interested in, it's really the only good history of poker. Um, this is a really interesting book, The Economic Function of Futures Markets. Um, for about 100 years, people wrote nothing but nonsense about futures markets. And then this guy came along, he had a PhD, um, came along and wrote a thin book around 1990 that Absolutely explained it. And it's funny, because after reading nonsense, I mean, just transparent nonsense about futures markets all the time, this guy wrote a book. And the thing about this book is it's logical. It makes sense. He's got a story. It makes sense. He's got empirical evidence for it. He, just, he nailed it. He explained what futures markets are. And, and nobody ever paid any attention. I mean, nobody ever cites it. Nobody ever reads it, whatever. But if you want to know futures markets, this is the guy who explains it. 
Um, Fisher Black, um, by the way, this is the hardback, which has a blue cover. If you buy the paperback with a black cover, uh, it has a forward by me. So uh, I go for the paperback. Um, but um, this is really interesting. This is, if you're interested in kind of the time when I was at Harvard and hanging around MIT and talking to people who were arguing about this kind of stuff, Fisher Black was a very important part of that. Um, um, and I knew him pretty well in those days. Um, and uh, um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff about how kind of logic and rationality and mathematics actually came into finance. Um, it wasn't, you know, it didn't come in naturally. It was some eccentric thinkers, like Stan Fisher Black was nothing if not eccentric, um, who did it. And this book kind of uh, explains it. A by a guy named Perry Merling. Perry Merling's a nice guy. He, wrote, he actually wrote another good book, uh, The New Lombard Street, that's very interesting about modern finance. Um, this is a book by Daniel Usner, who I do not know. Um, this kind of covers the prehistory. This tells you what the world was like in the Northwest United States before poker came in. Uh, it goes up to, I think, 1791 um, or so. So it's, uh, so it's a prehistory, but it's really fascinating economics. There was a really fascinating economy in this part of the world, the, the pre-modern economy, but it had within it more of the uh, design of the modern economy than if you'd gone to London or New York at the same time. Uh, this is a book, another guy, I don't know, I'll actually talked to him a few times about this book, but uh, when he was writing it, but this is More Money Than God. It's an excellent story, kind of the early hedge funds. A lot of these people who were coming from these sorts of backgrounds bringing some mathematics into finance. Um, um, doesn't have a tremendous insight. He, he doesn't get into like the strategies or the intellectual ideas behind the things, but I'll tell you the stories of the people and, and what happened um, and stuff like that. Uh, two books that I, I, I sort of did that I was, you know, coming up with this and I just pulled up some books. But there are two that I left off that I was thinking on the train ride up I should have put on here. One of them is called Poker Faces by a guy named David Hayeno. Uh, that, he's another guy I knew. I knew him in Gardena. He was a player in Gardena. He was also working on his PhD in sociology. Actually, actually, he called himself an autoethnographer. So he was a... Uh, uh, an ethnographer and a, uh, who studied himself. Um, and he wrote, anyway, he wrote, he wrote a book on Gardena and the poker economy and, and what it was like. I'm actually in the book. Um, but it really is a great book, and it really tells you kind of what the poker economy was like in the 70s. I think that was the last gasp that takes us back. I mean, the really, it was a lot weaker than it was in the you know, 1840s Chicago, so it wasn't as important to the economy. But it was still there. You could really see a lot of the uh, uh, relations, how things worked, really were there. I think that's kind of gone now. You really don't find that today. Another one is by a guy, a friend of mine, uh, Professor Phil Tetlock at uh, Wharton. His, he wrote a book called Expert Political Judgment. Um, and that tells you a lot about kind of what the things that drove me away from, uh, you know, basically how bad experts are predicting stuff. And what really drives you to, if you're good at this tough stuff, if you're a quantitative person, if you like to make bets, if you like to back your judgment, you know, you just got to stay away from experts. You got to go someplace where you find out in cold, hard cash whether you're making good or bad predictions. Uh, Poker Face of Wall Street, this is by me. This is, uh, covers a lot of stuff I'm talking about, the connection between poker and finance. And uh, Red-Blooded Risk, also by me, um, this tells a lot more about how people brought ideas from sports betting and uh, poker and um, um, uh, casino games and how that entered into 
um, mainstream finance. Okay, um, that's what I've got. Any questions, comments? Yeah. Um, I can really, I can't really answer that in the sense that, I mean, to really answer that, you'd have to have like tracked their winnings and losing for long periods of time. Bill ran a game in Courier House. Um, I didn't like the game. It was um, a very tense game. Uh, you always kind of got the feeling people lost more than they wanted to, um, and, and it wasn't a lot of fun to play. Um, he was certainly a, a respectable player at, at, at the time. Um, also, you also have to understand, I'm coming from a slightly different perspective. I'm really, at this point, one of the best players in the country. I don't, you know, we didn't really have rankings back then, it was kind of hard to tell. But I would say there were maybe 100 people in the country that I was felt more or less equal to, and I wasn't afraid of anybody. I mean, I would sit down at a table with anybody and play them kind of even. So none of these people were that level. None of these people were kind of serious professional players. But, you know, somebody can be a very competent, careful um, player. Uh, George Bush was a lot of fun to play with. Um, <laughs> um, ran a great game. Um, I don't think he was too interested in the money. Um, I'm not sure, uh, he didn't seem to be. <laughs> um, probably more interested in the connections, by the way. That, by the way, that's true of a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this networking and kind of this abstract. See, I'm, I'm an introvert, so for me, it's kind of this amazing thing that you can create these networks. I'm thinking of them very mathematical and have a diagram. For a lot of people, are just wired that way. They understand on some, you know, they don't sit down and draw network diagrams. Just say, hey, I'm going to play in this game. I'm going to make some friends. I'm going to chat with my friends. I'm going to buy a baseball team. I'm going to be president, you know, whatever. It, it, it works for them. Um, and that stuff never works for me. I have to think about it. I have to, you know, uh, do this on an intellectual level. Uh, so that was more fun. I would say of the people I played at, at Harvard at that time, um, the two that were probably the best, kind of in my recollection, was Scott Turow, uh, the author, who was uh, really, you know, could have been a pro-level player. Um, probably didn't play enough to do it, but um, um, had the instincts, had the people skills, and so on. And a guy named Lloyd Trefethen, who's a mathematician at Oxford now, and, uh, and just was a really good, actually taught me a lot of theory. You know, we, we, we talked about that stuff a lot. Um, but... Um, but all of us, one, th one thing I will say in terms of that, the people at Gardena, the people at Gardena really were a cut above. That a pretty good club player at Gardena, somebody who just kind of was you know, playing at the top stakes and break it even, something like that, was so much better than the you know, leather-ass Texas road gamblers who were you know, playing off in the World Series of Poker and things like that. I mean, you went to Las Vegas, these people just were not very good at poker. Now, they were very good at making money at poker, which is a little bit different. But if you just sat down, if you just listened to the analysis they gave of why they did things when they did, it was just, you know, <laughs> you know they're just, uh, they believed in luck. They uh, would make these arguments that just made no strategic sense at all. Um, they weren't even thinking in terms of what you think of as poker reforms. Now, that had very little to do with making a living at poker, right? If you were, um, one of those stories I like to tell is, there's a, uh, a story, and it's, I read it in a book, actually. I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but three WSOP winners. And it, it might have been Dolly Brunson, Sailor Roberts. Sailor Roberts was a good player. Um, he was probably the only one in that crowd that was really top. And one other, they used to uh, drive around Texas and play in just local tavern games. And you think, okay, well, three WSOP winners playing in these you know, Texas games and stuff. 
you know, just local people, they, they should clean up, right? They should make tons of money. Uh, Sailor told me they broke even. You know, they just weren't really making money playing poker. What they were doing was they were bag men for betting on high school football. So they were going to these towns who were playing some poker, and then they were collecting the bets and, and moving around and getting paid for that. But the poker was a break-even operation for them. So a lot of people who have sort of great reputations as a poker place, lots of colorful stories, uh, and just to, you, you set them down at a computer, you set them down at a you know, tournament or something, they would just be toast in, in, in five minutes. Um, but, but the people, us, you know, the people in Gardena who were much better in terms of theoretical poker play and playing the game, we would have been toast in that tavern in Texas, right? We would have been beaten over the head with a pool cue and left out with the cows or something. Uh, um, and then not just, I don't just mean we weren't tough. We weren't tough. We aren't tough. Um, we, weren't, we didn't have social skills. We, we had just enough social skills. Some of us, most of them didn't even have this. I'm, I was like considered like pretty social because I could actually get a game together of normal people and collect money and so on. Most of these people couldn't, right? Uh, they couldn't play with normal people. Um, and, uh, and none of us had the kind of skills that those people did. Other questions? Yeah. Um, do you think if you're a good poker player, are you better off making a big game for yourself or staying under the radar? It's hard for me to answer because I come from a strong tradition of being under the radar. It was very hard for me to come out. When I wrote this book, this was kind of my first public acknowledgement. I mean, people who knew me knew I played, including on Wall Street. You know, I mean, a lot of... Famous people on Wall Street, you know, play and I play with them and whatever. But to sort of come out in print, and and when I talked to people, I said, you know, I'm going to tell the story about you in the book, and the, you know, people who you would think would have no problem being identified as a poker player just would not uh, let me do it. But that said, you know, there's a whole career out there. I don't know if it's still true, but there are people who made fortunes by being famous poker players. And uh, the thing I always kind of wanted to do, I never. I've never liked tournaments. I don't like casinos. I, I play at them sometimes, but I like playing when I want to play. I don't like being told when to play. And, and uh, some of these casinos, the experience is just so physically unpleasant, you know, of playing at two in the morning and getting bad chairs or whatever. But uh, um, I was sort of tempted by high stakes poker. And I always thought that would be kind of fun, <laughs> you know, to go in there and play for cash and be on television, do that. And, and that was the one that I kind of thought of. But um, you also have to think a little bit. Like I say, my uh, uh, you know people at AQR have no problem with me, you know, writing the books and, and giving talks like this and so on. I don't know about me being ash on poker after dark. That probably would be uh, that probably be a step too much. So I think it's kind of a choice you make who you are, and I think if you decide who you are and you're true to it, you can be successful. What you don't want to do is put on a front. If you put on a front for something like that, it can come back to haunt you. So if you are a celebrity, I'm, I'm just not a celebrity. I never could be. I'd never be happy being one. Nobody's offered to make me one, but uh, um, and it wouldn't be right for me. But if you are cut from that cloth, you know you should do it. Be true to yourself. Yeah. And and sorry, perception of what? Um, it's gone through, it kind of goes through, okay, so first it was just laughable. Um, and, and, oh, and, and let me explain how Wall Street works, by the way. Wall Street is sales. Finance is sales. All the money in finance always has, always will be in sales. A few quants can make a couple of bucks on the edges, you know, a few billion even, but, but it's just not a lot in the whole scheme of things. If you can bring money in, if you can gather assets, it's always been, been rewarded. 
So when the early quants came, the, the attitude is, you know, let's say you're uh, an, um, uh, like uh, LOR associates, people know that, um, O'Brien, um, Rubenstein, and uh, I'm blanking on names, people who did portfolio insurance in the 80s, whatever. Anyway, so these finance professors show up, these quants show up. What Wall Street is saying, hey, great, you know, we don't care, you could be astrologers, you could uh, uh, be chartists, whatever. If you're gathering assets and you're giving it to us and paying us commissions to trade it back and forth, if you're giving you know, people reason to trade. We're we're happy to service you, and we'll pretend we like you, and we pretend we respect you. Whatever, we don't care, and they really don't. And so that was kind of the attitude toward mathematicians: that if you have a way to generate trades and to talk people in trading, great, because we're just taking a commission, right? All we care about is that people are coming in and doing this. Um, then they started figuring out, but you know, hey, wait a minute, these guys aren't like everybody else. <laughs> these guys actually are making money. You know, it, it, it's some of this stuff really does make money. That's very, very difficult for Wall Street to come to terms with. There's a New York Times Magazine article about Lehman Brothers with Lou Gluckman and uh, Peter Peterson. The clash of those cult, you know, the shirt sleeve, cigar chomping, trader culture totally you know, at odds with the white shoe investment banking culture uh, when these two things crashed. So then people were kind of afraid of mathematicians, but also somewhat dismissive of them. So uh, um, okay. then I think it's kind of mellowed out a little bit. But I will still say, I, you know, AQR is a quant hedge fund. When we go and uh, do our, you know, our credit things, the credit counterparties, they all, the, the assumption is nobody can understand your black box trading. Now, it's just not true. I mean, we are very transparent. We can sit it down. And certainly, any of you could figure it out in five minutes. But, but other people, we maybe take an hour. But we can lay it down. Here's what we do, right? You know, here are the eight signals, and we measure these things. And if we add them up, and we find the best, and we buy this, and we short that, um, it's not... It's a lot simpler than you know somebody who's saying, "Oh, I'm doing this quantitative analysis or technical analysis or I'm fundamental stuff, and I'm thinking about all these 85 factors." We tell you exactly uh, what we do, and they always assign the most junior credit person to us because they figure nobody can understand it anyway, so why waste uh, somebody who knows what's going on? That kind of prejudice you still find a lot. That somehow what we do is crazy, it's a little weird, it, it's, nobody can really understand it, it seems to kind of work, so we'll continue to do business, we'll recommend you, we'll put our clients' money in you, but not with the same confidence we have with a guy who's you know, saying, I went to the company and I you know, pounded the tires and I talked to the CEO and I shook him and said, you know, tell me what's really going on here, and I understand this stuff. Uh, the biggest problem is you know, your quant's not confident. It's still the case that people measure your uh, sincerity, that people measure your credibility, how much they believe you by how confident you are. So if I come in and I say, well, you know, I got this model, it seems to work pretty well, I think I got a 60% chance that this trade will make money, you know, they just think you're, a, they, they don't know where you're coming from, what planet. A guy comes in and I'm sure this is going to work, it's got to, you know, I got all these 87 reasons, whatever. Now, now, they don't believe him, they think it's 51%, you know, just like, but, but they expect him to be confident and they, they understand that. So I think that's the biggest problem. If you want to be a quant and you really want to be honest about your confidence for things, it is shocking to people how little you know. It is shocking to people that with all this work, you know, 51% is still pretty good. Um, and, uh, and that, I think, is the barrier we're going to have real trouble ever surmounting. You know, a quant can understand, hey, 51%, enough bets, you know, you can be a casino, rake it in the money at roulette. You know, that's great. 
Um, Non-quants have trouble with that concept, which is why they're playing roulette. <clears throat> Without the glasses. Um, okay, we... Yeah, well, thank you very much for your attention.